One second. Okay, we're good to go. All right, let's get started. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, dear listeners, wherever you are. Today, I have the pleasure to have with me uh, Jonathan Draper from uh, Canada. And uh, Jonathan is somebody that I've known for a very long time. We first met when he was a PhD student at the University of Sheffield. And it's really many, many years ago. And it's really a pleasure to have you on the show, Jonathan. Welcome to uh, Research Lives and Culture. Thank you, Sandrine. Uh, it's, as you say, we've known each other for a long time, I think maybe 20 years now. So it is an absolute pleasure to be here and an honor as well to be able to uh, talk about my career and research experiences. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. So, Jonathan, you started uh, your research as a, as a biologist and now you're program director for the Stem Cell Network in Canada. And going from Sheffield to Canada, it, I'm sure it's been a long journey of, uh, of exploration professionally and personally in terms of living in a, in a different country. Can you give us a really brief overview of, of your career so far? Sure, yeah. I, I think I have a little bit of a different route into science in general than maybe others because I, I really loved science in school, secondary school, um, and but for varying reasons didn't do so well um, at, at, at school. And that meant um, that I made some decisions early on uh, when I was moving into uh, what would be sixth form college at the time. So I would have been about 17 or 18. And I made the decision to do um, social sciences. I, I signed up to do uh, government and politics and sociology and a, and a few other A-level courses. And, um, and I kind of enjoyed them, but in the end, um, I actually ended up dropping out of school and not completing my A-levels because I, uh, my parents moved and I wasn't really, you know, really into the subjects really at the end and, and enjoying them. So I, I dropped out and spent quite a few years actually working in various service jobs. Uh, and it was a interesting experience. You know, I worked in a warehouse. Uh, I, I worked in chocolate factories and other bits and pieces. And, um, but found that none of them actually fulfilled my love of science clearly. And I, and that was always there. And so I, at the time, I think I was an avid reader, really enjoyed reading books of you know, science books, the new scientist magazine, et cetera. So this would have been the very early nineties. This would have been, I was fortunate to have very supportive parents who, who gave me the space to find my direction. And, and in the end, I was able to re-enter the education system and uh, I, I did a, a, a diploma at a local college. And then uh, at the time, fortunately, um, the University of Sheffield ran a science access course for those who had not completed A-levels and, and could actually move into, um, into a degree course eventually through this access course. So I was able to do that, signed up originally to go to Sheffield to do uh, astronomy and physics. And then it became quite clear after a after a while, um, the astronomy and physics weren't really, uh, I wasn't going to be able to make that a career really, or it was going to be something of a struggle because I didn't have the math really. That was quite clear. You know, I was, I like math. I think it's a great subject. Um, I, I just don't have uh, degree level math skills, I think. And 
I also had also an enthusiasm for biology, which I'd had for a long time. I had that dream. It was one of my favorite subjects at school as well. And I made the transfer uh, from astronomy and physics over to uh, anatomy and cell biology and uh, did my undergraduate, obviously, at, at Sheffield doing that. And I just interrupt you here. I mean, something I found really fascinating is that I, when when I worked at Sheffield, I've actually run workshops, you know, for some of these access programs for, you know, when the university run, you know, outreach activities to encourage young people to get into education who come from non-traditional background. And, and it's actually the first time that I'm meeting somebody who had a science career, who is actually has been part of some of these, uh, you know, these workshops and these programs. So it's really quite exciting because, you know, when you're a researcher and you do your public engagement and outreach activities, you, you never get a chance to meet some of the kids, you know, or young, young adults that you've met in some of these sessions. So in a way, it's really exciting that you're one of those who've actually benefited and, and then had a career. So uh, I didn't yeah, I, know that about you. That's really, that's really fascinating. Wow. So, you know, I, I, I would, I don't know whether these courses still exist. I, I did a brief search uh, earlier today, actually, and, and I couldn't find an access course that was similar to the one that I took at, at Sheffield. So, I don't know if they do exist still, but um, they certainly were a gateway for me. And, and without that, I don't know where I would have ended up. Um, actually, I probably would have ended up in nursing because at one point I applied to do nursing as well. But that's a different story. Um, so I then um, was performing my, my undergraduate degree at Sheffield, um, you know, happily doing anatomy and cell biology. And, and because of my financial circumstances, I needed to find work each year, each summer to, to support myself. And so I managed uh, to initiate a discussion with, at the time, the departmental uh, manager, um, a gentleman called Ivan Dart, who, um, who and this was the, bio, uh, the BBS department, biology department, at um, biomedical science department at Sheffield. And he said, uh, we need a database designing. Uh, do you think you're up to that? And I had some computer skills, so I worked with Ivan for the summer. And part of the database was essentially managing financial, um, uh, you know, predictions for the for the the department in terms of grants, revenues, who's applying, what's going to happen. And that was uh, at the behest of the departmental chair, who was Peter Andrews, who would later become my supervisor. So I worked on that uh, depart departmental database, struck up uh, essentially a, a really, Peter's a wonderful guy, uh, struck up a relationship with him, uh, you know, a working relationship. He was obviously found what I was doing, you know, important, suggested that I maybe I'd like to do my final year undergraduate project in his lab. And so I did. And I started working with, in Peter's lab, working on, at the time, it was human embryonal carcinoma cells. And so that was my first project. And I recall during the, the latter stages of that project, and so this would have been 98, Jamie Thompson um, derived uh, human embryonic stem cells at the time. And I, I recall walking across Firth Court with the Guardian newspaper, reading the headline and thinking to myself, wow, this is big. This is you know, directly involved in what I'm involved in. And it turned out that um, Peter knew Jamie well, had been in the same lab, and Jamie distributed the human pluripotent stem cells to only a couple of labs. 
and around the world at the time. And one of them was Peter. And um, so I started my PhD, started working with pluripotent stem cells, asking very basic questions, um, did a, a lot of really descriptive work on these cells, which I think became highly cited. Um, and then also made sort of a, a, something of a discovery together with Peter that the, the cells would become aneuploid and, and could accumulate genetic alterations, which could have their impact on their safety for different uh, different uses, you know, when you differentiate them into cell types. And, and that became something of a sort of a groundbreaking paper, which I think really set my career going. And, and from there, then, um, you know, I moved on to postdocs and Uh, in Canada, that was the next step for me. It's funny because sometimes we say, you know, well, I was just, you know, in the right place at the right time. Do you think this was the case for you in terms of, you know, some of these, you know, the ability to use, you know, embryonic stem cells at the time and, you know, being in a lab where, okay, you had access to some materials that maybe many other, you know, institution and research group didn't? I, I definitely think that was uh, at least part of the equation. I think um, there there was a lot of hype at the time about human uh, embryonic stem cells and what they could do for what we now call regenerative medicine. Um, I I think that uh, it, we had a, a very you know lucky position. Uh, Peter's uh, previous relationship with uh, Jamie meant that we were able to access these cells. Uh, and we did a lot of time, I spent a lot of time training others as they gained access to the cells to actually be able to grow them because it wasn't initially straightforward and it was quite difficult at the beginning. And indeed, it meant that at one point I had to, to travel to, to Jamie's lab, I think in the summer of 2000, um, to, to go and actually, you know, learn some techniques to actually to make sure that the cells were, were growing uh, uh, to their best uh, ability. And um You know, I, I think I, through that, through that fortunate series of events, it, it, it established uh, me as an expert in a field, you know, a young expert at that. And also at the time, you've got to recall that there, there was very few, very few publications. So it, it was possible to know and have read every publication in the field. And I had. <laughs> and so, you know, and some of the publications I made contributed to the very early number of publications that were available at that time. So it was a bit of a unique circumstance. And yes, I think um, I think that helped very much capital, uh, catalyze what I was able to do actually with, in my career. I'm sure it was a very exciting time in, in some ways too, because I mean, when you think at, you know, in most research disciplines, we, we often talk with researchers about establishing a research niche and how challenging it is for, you know, for individuals to to in a way identify a space where there isn't too much competition, uh, where, you know, they have the skills, but also where they really feel that they want to contribute. So having a way, I mean, in, in your case, having an area that was being built almost like a new, you know, a new research area must have been really, um, really rewarding. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that it was very helpful with, uh, and I think this is something that some researchers can struggle with is, is others other people acknowledging that their work has importance and so I was you know through no effort of my own just by being actually working on these cells it there was a large amount of press hype and his, sometimes hysteria about pluripotent stem cells and um 
and that really elevated what you know my sense of what the importance of the work that I was doing and and other people's perception of the importance of the work that was being done and so that I think that contributed a great deal to to the feelings of you know of, of pursuing something worthwhile of doing something that had potentially applications and, and meaning to to people and so that was I think really was a motivator as well you know I really wanted to do something which was which could help people and could um and could change people's lives eventually potentially through treatments that would have you know i mean it's only now you know 20 years later that we're really seeing treatments roll out so it took a long time to come but um yeah it, it was it was fulfilling at the time so at the end of your phd then what happened in terms of finding a postdoc and and your move to canada so so then the next stage was Um, I, I've been very fortunate during my PhD to do a number of different uh, events. I'd worked, um, as I said, I was teaching people how to use pluripotent stem cells. And part of that was participating in um, some NIH um, educational uh, workshops that were run each year at, in Bar Harbor, the Jackson Labs. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be uh, one of the, 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 um, the people teaching that. And so I made a lot of connections across the developmental biology and stem cell research world. And so some of those people were um, people that I eventually ended up working with. And, and uh, one of those was Andres Nagy. I, I uh, had bumped into him uh, at Bar Harbor and, and made his acquaintance and uh, you know, found him to be an extraordinary, interesting and stimulating thinker, really charismatic I'd also had the opportunity to uh, to bump into uh, Janet Rosson at one point as well, and it turned out that they were in the same institute, and I'd followed their work, uh, you know, because developmental biology and stem cell biology at the time and, and still are very much linked. Um, uh, I followed a lot of developmental biology, uh, read the papers, and both Andras and Janet were making substantial um, and continue to make substantial um, progress and and um, do really outstanding studies in the area. So they were people that I was really fascinated by uh, and their labs. And I was fortunate as well because at the time, one of the funding agencies in the UK, the BBSRC, uh, they had allocated a, a large chunk of money to stem cell research. And uh, as part of that, um, Peter and I crafted an application uh, to the BBSRC, which would allow me to travel for three years um, uh, and then return to the UK so I could choose where I was going. And, and this made me a really attractive proposition because the, 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 the award came with both salary support and consumables. And so, you know, I cost nothing when I arrived. I had a bunch of skills that other people wanted. And, you know, I, I actually brought resources into the lab as well because I had consumables. And so that's what happened. I, I'd contacted Andras and Janet. I, I interviewed eventually uh, there in, uh, I think, 2003, late 2003, and then eventually arrived in Canada in 2004, uh, April of 2004, and um, started work in two fantastic labs with fantastic uh, researchers. Um, you know, they were world-renowned excellent thinkers, you know, really great people as well, uh, who were very supportive, just like Peter Andrews was, he was a superb um, supervisor. And so I, I've really been very lucky in meeting people, actually, um, having great supervisors who have been very super supportive. 
so the funding that you had from the BBSRC, was it like a fellowship or was it uh, what sort of... Uh... It was sort of like an interesting blend. At the time, I, I, it, you know, this is quite a while ago now, but um, I recall that I, I was supposed to return to, to the UK. That was part of the, 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 the agreement. And, uh, and I, I, at, after the award was, you know, um, after I received the award, I, at one conference, I managed to talk to one of the people who worked at the BBSRC and they said that they liked to, to do some, some sort of um, new different approaches. And they saw my, my application as being a, a, a new approach, you know, I would combine sort of a fellowship with a, with a project. And so it was to, to really look at how stem cells, the properties of, of pluripotent stem cells, how they differentiate. And so they took a risk and uh, and bet on me and, you know, very, very pleased they did. Uh, in the end, lots of life happened. You know, I really, uh, I shortly actually met my wife not not long after arriving in Canada and then we had children. And, uh, and also I established a research career and, and reputation in Canada, um, which in the end, meant that returning was not, you know, on the timetable that we'd originally worked on uh, wasn't going to happen. And, uh, you know, and then in the long term, I actually ended up staying here for for what mm -hmm. is now uh, 16 years, I guess, 17 years. Often, you know, people may do, you know, one postdoc or, you know, a postdoc and a fellowship and, you know, be in a very good position. But then the transition to actually setting up a research group is one that, you know, very few people are able to do, you know, if you're thinking of the big uh, pool of, of postdoc and, and PhD students. So how did you, I mean, at the end of this original funding that you had from the BBSRC, how did you manage to become a research group leader? I, I'd never really thought about uh, for the longest time that I would become a, an investigator. I'd always just really enjoyed the process of doing science. But in both of um, Andras and Janet's labs, there was a, uh, I don't know if it was a tradition, more, more there was exposure to people who were always moving up and through positions. And so those people um, would go on to, you know, different uh, research positions from investigators through to, you know, industry positions, et cetera. And so there was this, there was this constant conveyor belt of people going through and, and showing that this was possible. People you could communicate with, talk about their experiences, understand what, what was um, feasible. And so it became clear, you know, I enjoyed doing science a lot. I enjoyed being part of that process. And so this was an opportunity that I couldn't really miss. And so I think towards the last part of my postdoc, my postdoc lasted four years. I think 2007, I started looking and found out about a position at a, a university, which is actually quite near Toronto, a McMaster University. And that was a, an investigator called uh, Mick Batty, who had opened up an institute at the Stem Cell, at Stem Cell Research Institute at McMaster. And applied for the position, uh, interviewed, went through the, all the processes. You know, it was competitive, and was able to secure a position, which was uh, which started in February of two thousand and eight. You know, in hindsight, I think you know, it seems really straightforward and simple, but it certainly wasn't. You know, careers in general, when you look at them in retrospect, they always seem to be really straightforward series of steps. But uh, and and there's a lot of I think there's a lot of nostalgia when people tell you about their careers. They miss out all of the other tedious setbacks and, and things that they'd rather forget. And there's also survivor bias, I think. You know, obviously, if you're interviewing someone who made a position as a PI, there, there's many, many people who don't make, make that 
process. And I think also, I think it's from, you know, now with perspective later in life, I think it's worth acknowledging that PI is a great position to be in and it's a you know wonderful role to go through, but it's not the only worthy and wonderful role that you can get once you have interest in science and you, you obtain the degrees. So I think one important element in what, in what you're saying is that seeing others move into this position and almost, you know, I don't know, getting a sense that it's not just for a special elite that, you know, anybody who is, you know, good at doing the science and really daring enough to jump into that sort of role, that it, it is possible. Because I've, I've, I've talked to so many postdocs and, and research fellows who don't see themselves, you know, they love doing the science, but there is something, there is a barrier in terms of seeing that themselves in that sort of role. And it's almost that you need to have experienced what it feels like to really realize, actually, I, I can do this. I mean, it may be hard and everything, but the way I often talk in my workshops to people about the, the notion of identity and how identity shapes the way we see what can be next for us. So do you think that seeing in your research group that, um, you know, when you were a postdoc, that other people were indeed moving and transitioning, that, do you think that it contributed to have a sense, okay, I, I can do this, you know, I, you don't have to be superhuman to actually become a PI? Yeah, I think, I think absolutely. I, I, I don't think there was, you know, I saw all of these people as peers and, and equals and, you know, and I think that's a, it's been a, a useful outlook. I, you know, don't see other people as better than you. Just see them as they've got different skill sets. I think that's been one thing. But I never, I don't recall ever thinking that it was something that I couldn't achieve or, or do. Uh, achieve is different. I, I, what I do mean is that it was something that I couldn't actually do. Uh, you know, I, I thought that I had the skill sets to do it. And so I never questioned myself about that. I was, you know, during the process of attempting to acquire a, a PI position, obviously there was a lot of, you know, you, you went for the interview, you're nervous, would I get it, you know, would, whatever, you know, those sorts of emotions were present. But the idea that I could, that it, uh, it was something that I could not succeed at, that would be, that didn't really enter my mind. I think people who have made it through their postdocs, um, who have made it through their PhDs, you know, there's a lot of intelligent people out there, but I don't think necessarily intelligence is the guiding star there. I think it's more about stamina and endurance a lot of the time. So a PhD is a test of endurance. Can you turn up every day and despite setbacks, actually continue um, to, to work towards something? Can you sit down at the end and, and dedicate a few months to writing? You know, that's it. It's, it's not about how smart you are necessarily. I mean, it can help. But it is about, it's just about stamina, putting one foot in front of the other and just keeping on and, and not getting over, overwhelmed by the, what, the magnitude of what you see the task to be. What did you find the most exciting, uh, you know, in the process of either setting up your group or managing your group? A, a big a big excitement was the, the opportunity to select your research direction. I think those are, that was something that I was really you know, interested in, I'd always been fascinated from the, the first time I'd looked at pluripotent stem cells in general, when you, you grew the cells and you, uh, if you didn't grow them well, or you, or you started to differentiate them, all sorts of stuff would happen. And it was organized chaos in a bowl in the, in the dish. And 
I was fascinated by what these different things were, what were emerging. You know, you, you could see uh, phenotypically they, or morphologically, these were different, uh, you know, different sorts of cell types going on there, but you had no idea really what they were. You know, there was some guidance from the mouse in terms of the morphology and of other cell types. And, uh, you know, earlier on, there wasn't always necessarily this full suite of markers that we now have that are well described to, to be able to, to start the process of, of linking morphology with, for instance, fate-related protein expression. And so I was always fascinated by that. And so this became an, uh, was something that I was really interested in. Uh, and one of the other things that I think uh, I was aware of that I did need to distance myself from my supervisors, that's something that everybody tells you. And I think it is required um, simply because it shows independence. And I had been very fortunate to be in Andras's lab where there was a lot of genetic engineering experience. And so I picked up a lot of genetic en engineering experience and, and, and the engineering and, and tinkering with cells had appealed very much to me. And so combining those two, uh, two approaches, uh, you know, looking at how stem cells make decisions and then some of the genetic tools was really where I set off. And I didn't necessarily end up there, but that was really the guiding star. So I was also really fortunate at the, at the beginning of my, my, my tenure as a, an investigator to be awarded a, can, uh, a Canada Research Chair. And these are really quite prestigious chairs that are um, you know, merit-based. And, and with that came along uh, something they call CFI funding, which is like infrastructure and, and equipment funding as well. So both of those, I think, placed me in a, a, a really really strong position to start a group and um with that i was able to make you know decisions independent decisions which were not necessarily restricted by you know the immediate needs to to, to get grants uh, and what have you so that gave me a little bit of time breathing room etc and so that was all i think very exciting that whole process at, at the time yeah I mean, one of the things that you're referring to in terms of, you know, distancing yourself from your, you know, your PI, from whoever you are doing your postdoc with, is, is a challenging one because when you've worked for many years with somebody or, you know, in the lab of somebody, even if, you know, many of the projects are your own, you know, finding the space that belongs to you where you're, you're not going to, to take space that the PI doesn't necessarily want you to take. How did you negotiate conversation with this person in terms of saying, okay, that's how I'm taking the research forward. That's what I'm going to do. Because I've run a lot of uh, workshops on collaboration and, and that's often one of these elements that, that comes back is, you know, how do I discuss with my PI about this area that I want to carry on working on that in a way initially really belongs to the lab, you know, where you are as a postdoc, but, you know, taking it forward into your own fellowship or, you know, or to your own research grant. What, what was it like for you specifically in, in setting up your own research direction? So it, it wasn't hugely difficult, um, both Janet and Andrash had the foresight to, to see the importance of establishing a, a good start for their the researchers that came out of their lab. I, you know, the important thing was, I, I don't remember there being a formal conversation with either of them about this. It was really, there was, an, there was just an unspoken understanding that I wouldn't attempt to, I think, maybe copy, you know, exactly what I'd done before and work 
on that. So I did branch out and, and, you know, focus. There's so many different things to do. I did take some of the, the, the topics that I was working on. You know, w- when you start out as an investigator, uh, there's a number of things that you attempt to do, and, and some of them turn out to be dead ends. This is science in general. And, and some of the things that I did take from the lab um, turned out not to be fertile sort of areas to work on and so I I didn't I didn't persist with that and so that really was in some ways taken care of by fate you know I didn't overlap because things didn't work out so so that was that was how that worked and uh, another uh, interesting part I think in this period of transition is that when you you know for many who do experimental research, you know, the practical part of being in the lab doing the experiment is something that people really enjoy and don't necessarily want to let go of. And how did it feel like for you when you became, you know, a research group leader in terms of you can't be in the lab all the time, or maybe at the beginning you are, but there is a point where you need to let go. And also the dimension of, you know, you may have spent a lot of time writing funding for a grant. You know, your experiments are your little babies and you really want the experiments to be done. And then you may have a PhD student or a postdoc who is completely lousy in the lab and completely fails the experiment. And it's very frustrating. All the experiments do not work. And and you can't and still, you know, you cannot do everything and you need to delegate. And it's it's really hard. So. What was it in your own experience, this letting go and letting others and trusting others? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think no investigator starts out fully formed and you go through a process of learning, of, of um, you know, accommodating. And so you're right at the beginning. I spent most of my time in the lab. And uh, then I, you know, as you recruit people, um, you can train them. And then if you train them well, they're able to train new members who come into the lab. So that eases that pressure. And you are obviously expected to write. As I mentioned, I had some uh, funds, uh, um, salary support, uh, infrastructure, and also startup funds that allowed me to to dedicate, you know, the first year or so to really working on on projects in the lab and actually firsthand being in the lab. You know, I, I loved doing t- tissue culture. I loved doing uh, molecular cloning. Those are things that I, you know, I do. I miss now as a as a research administrator. That I, you know, going into the hood and working was always fun for me. I always enjoyed that. But I think you you have to realize that you need to give people space. People gave me space to develop. And if you're, you're all self-reflective, you, you, you try and do that. And, and sometimes you're a little bit, you know, as you transition out of being in the lab all the time, you may ask your, your trainees, you know, maybe once too often a week, how the experiments have gone. And <laughs> you don't, you try not to crowd them, but you're just so curious. And so I think, uh, Giving people space, that's a skill that you learn. And over time, you you try and develop that. And you're not always perfect at it. And, you know, hopefully people see it in as enthusiasm and not as, as micromanaging. But in the end, you know, you know, a decade in, I think I was much better than I was earlier on. Yeah, for sure. So research culture is something that I'm really passionate about. Mm-hmm. And you, you sort of allude uh, to it uh, just now in, in terms of giving space to others. But how did you think that you, over the years, creating a, created an atmosphere in your research group so that, you know, to help have a research culture within your group, at least, 
to you know to enable others uh, and again you know we we've talked previously about the topics of um, you know of of diversity and you know how do we bringing you know more diverse researchers and you know many of the behaviors that we have ourselves you know in the way that we supervise in the way we engage others really contribute to shape the research culture that is an enabler or not for others but could you give us some examples of your own approach when you've worked with, you know, with undergrad, PhD student, and even postdoc in what you've tried to do to create, you know, that that thriving research environments, you know, where diversity is just something that is possible in the research environment? I think one of the things that I took, um, and and this was, I, I think. As a result of how I'd been treated uh, as well, was to treat everyone as peers. Uh, you know, the trainees are your peers. They're just at a different stage of their career. And so they, they deserve equal respect for everything that they're attempting to do. You know, they may do things di differently and, and potentially, you know, they may need some encouragement or redirection when they're doing things um, and support. But they're still your peers and they still deserve to be absolutely treated as, you know, as, as you would want to be treated. And so that, I think that was the first thing and, and leading by example by doing that. And then I, I, honestly, so honesty and integrity, I think, are the two currencies that scientists trade on most with their career reputations. And, and so showing always that honesty and, and integrity were important parts of of doing science I think that was something I always did you know if a result didn't work then it didn't work and you had to accept that there was no no way around it you know and 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 being as honest as you possibly could when reporting and describing data that was that was I think something that I really tried to do I I, I never succumbed to the temptation to to do you know those things that you sometimes read about and, and so I think I tried to show that honesty and integrity were in really important components of being a scientist and the other part um so building a team so I was very fortunate the population of, of of undergrad students that I would typically recruit from for instance for PhD and master's students um, very diverse in Canada. And so that was never really an issue in terms of identifying diversity. And, and, and the mechanism for recruitment that I had was really based upon curiosity and engagement. And so if people were curious and they were engaged, I, I was ready to give pretty much anyone a go. Curiosity and engagement, I think, are two core personality traits that make it so much easier to to participate in science because it can be it can be difficult and you know long hours lots of frustration in the lab and so having the curiosity keeps you returning to the problem and being engaged means that you're willing to turn up and actually do do the do the work and so and i think this reflects um my earlier career where I, I you know in, in school I didn't necessarily do quite as well as I had and people gave me opportunities despite that and I and I think people do deserve opportunities they may not come you know in uniform packages of excellent grades with with all of the tick boxes that you want and they that kind of diversity in terms of skills and experience um can really help a lab if you if you're willing to engage and also invest in the people um, so I think that was one of the mechanisms that that uh, that I used, 
I think uh, I, I, there were situations earlier on where I had trainees who had, for instance, family member, you know, they had a family and um, their own family. And so there was always, uh, I, I felt no issue with accommodating for th- those issues. I mean, th- that that particular trainee that I'm thinking of actually worked really hard and, and uh, was, was, you know, was a fantastic trainee um, and, and did that despite juggling the, the issues that can come from also having a family, the challenges. So yeah, I think there was always the room. I would always listen. If someone had an issue that, you know, never wanted to drive and work someone into the ground. So we'd always try and accommodate um, and, and make sure that people felt that they were a valuable member of the team. Uh, that was really my approach there, I think. I mean, the thing that you just said is a really important one of letting people know that they're valuable member of a team because often you know they, a lot of PhD student and postdoc feel you know used by their supervisor you know and you know they, there is this term you know or we just the la, you know the lab rat it's something that I've heard many times it's not something I've experienced myself in when when I worked in research but there is still a, a sense of being used by by the system you know of where people do postdoc after postdoc and are not necessarily you know, um, I don't know, don't have a sense of being rewarded for the commitment that they have to the research. So just letting people know that they, you know, that their contribution matters. So how have you been able to do that in your group? Well, one of the things that I think I learned fairly early on was that ownership um, is an important component for uh, um being engaged with a project. Uh, and so if you prescribe a project to a trainee, for instance, you end up um, taking away ownership from them. And also you are then responsible if it succeeds or fails. So providing them with ownership, making sure that they're part of the development process of the, the ideation when they're developing the project, um, ensuring that those people are really engaged in that means that they feel ownership and that they participate. They want to be part of it. They, they're turning up and, and they're doing things because the reward is, you know, for their own innovation and, and sort of the time that they put in there. And, and I think that became, you know, clear a, you know, a year or two in that that was the best road to, to take and, and try and give people uh, the best experience that they could have when coming through as trainees in my lab. So one of the things that uh, in some of the the interviews that I've done with PI that that people have said to me, which I found really hard to accept, and people have said, well, you know, within six months, you know whether a postdoc is going to make it or not. And I found that really quite patronizing and really hard to hear. And I wanted to know yourself, you know, in the experience that you have of working with researchers, what is it that you do as a PI that's really the most crucial and you know you've just said you know giving ownership is a really important one but what else is there in terms of building people up in terms of enabling people to build the confidence that they need you know in their own research ideas i think one of the important parts is to make it clear that that there isn't one single goal here um you know 
the project is the project and obviously you want to, to fulfill the goals of the project you know test the hypothesis identify if there is a trend there that you you suppose at the beginning and then follow it through to something like a publication but there's also the human component of the experience which is the development of the individual you know their career development etc and and there's varying reasons why people can feel maybe you know um disappointed by this and 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 i think if they are always taking the the they always think that there's a path to a certain route you know like a goal becoming a pi or something then 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 yeah i think failure could be something that you could consider being you know a, a, a peril there but, but I, I i think if you just make it clear to people that you know there's many roots in science uh there's many outcomes and and um often you, you know the i think my outlook is the, the best place you can be is where you are now in some ways you know you've got to make the most of what you have right now and so following that and 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 understanding really what is it that you're you're doing here you're not this isn't you know like um to put it it's a, it's not a test of who you are necessarily it's just a it's a stepping stone during your career and you know there's no points of failure uh you know it, it's not like that i don't it, that's my approach anyway and and i think it's worth reminding people you know that i think uh you come into you're going through a training process so you're gaining experience or attempting to gain experience and experience is the thing that you get after you need it you know or before you need it i think and i think i think it's it's something that you you just have to to be happy with that you know the process and the journey is an important part of this so if you're reflecting on what's been the most challenging in working as a research group leader what what would you say uh, it was i i think uh big challenges would be i think the continual you know if you're not careful the bracketing yourself within you you set out to do things you set out to write a grant and get the grant you set out to write a paper and publish it in a specific journal and if you don't achieve that then you can see that as failure and dealing with those continual setbacks to what was your original agenda can be very difficult and you know science is very good at holding a magnifying glass up to your flaws And so I think you have to be comfortable with the the idea that um you you're going to fail and and the failures make you stronger because it builds the experience and just having that that um that positive sort of feel for the feedback loop that you're getting instead of taking it to heart sure you're crushed for the first half hour or so after you you know maybe even an hour like shed a tear after you found out that that, that grant that you've worked for you know weeks on um was rejected and they didn't like the idea but that actually tells you something valuable once you actually you know set down and sort of gather yourself that it tells you invaluable information it tells you that you failed to communicate properly it tells you that you maybe haven't thought about um uh, about the experiment in a way that captures all of the variables that you need to consider and and so taking the feedback and actually incorporating that that can be difficult and challenging but ultimately it's quite rewarding because it it makes you less brittle i think in in general 
Yeah. So I mean, it's uh, yeah. When you get the the the, the response, the negative response, it's uh, you know, it takes a while to uh, to deal with it. But uh, learning how to incorporate the feedback is something we we still I'm still learning. That's for sure. <laughs> One other thing that I think maybe is worth mentioning, and and this is I may be a UK specific thing. Coming from the UK, um, I think coming into Canada, it it was difficult to do self-promotion in the way that North Americans do it. And they're, they're able to speak freely about their own successes and, and skill sets. And, and, and there was certainly culturally for me, that was something that I was not comfortable with. And uh, I think that was something overcoming that was also difficult because you really have to sell your brand. It is a brand that you've got in science and marketing yourself um, uh, and and building that brand, you know, and, and that's done through interacting with people at, at uh, conferences. It's through the talks that you give. It's through, your, you know, all of your interactions is really your branding in science. And so that um, the self-promotion was a difficult component, which took me some time, I think, to try and be comfortable with a couple of years at least. Mm. Were there other elements in terms of uh, moving your research career uh, overseas that you uh, that you felt really challenged? I mean, I did my PhD in the States and then moving to the UK. You know, I, I know what it feels like to you know to be in a foreign country. But what what was your own experience of you know? Because the the example that you just gave is is, is a really you know I can completely relate to. You know, having grown up in France, you know, self-promotion is definitely not something, at least when I was a young adult, something that we we, we learned to do well. So were there other elements in terms of transitioning, you know, moving to another country and doing research in a different environment that were particularly challenging? Yeah, I, I think I think there the were. Um, I, I mean, one of the things that I think was challenging was that I hadn't been to the the Canadian university system, and there are differences there in the way that things are run, especially the you know the graduate experience, for instance, the the different uh, processes that are involved. I mean, uh, largely it's similar, you know, uh, but there are some some changes. The way degree committees work, etc. Those sorts of things were were a little bit different, and 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 so was the undergraduate teaching to some extent as well. So those were challenges that I. I think uh, the granting system in Canada, there's a different style of how people write grants. Um, and I, I think that took a little bit of time to learn how to, to emulate that style and fit in so that people could really understand what you were trying to say, because the emphasis might be different on different components. Uh, so that was different. I mean, to be fair, I hadn't had an enormous amount of experience in writing grants in the UK. I'd read people's grants, but I hadn't I hadn't seen as uh, you know as much as I potentially had when I came to Canada, so you know there's, there was differences there, and and the, the application process for CIHR, which is the equivalent of the MRC, for instance, uh, here in Canada, um, it was different, and it took some time to understand that you had to write a bio sketch, for instance, which was a self promotional piece, which which I think I struggled with, you know, <laughs> to, to to actually write about yourself in the in the third person and and uh, and, and promote yourself that that's difficult yeah no it's uh, i mean i come across so many postdocs who certainly are challenged by by this um, so what what do you think was your internal motivator in in being a scientist and um how have you taken that to your next role so 
I mean, maybe let's backtrack a bit and, and maybe if you can tell us what made you decide then to stop being a research group leader and move into the role that you have now? Yeah. So why did I transition out of, of science, uh, research science as an investigator? So at the time, as I said, I started in 2008 and I, I kind of started getting a little bit of an itch in 2016, 20 or so. And then 2017, I think I formed the idea that I, you know, there was, if I was going to make a change, I needed to do it soon because I wasn't getting any younger. And I think as an investigator, I ticked many of the boxes that I I needed to be to, to be, you know, seen as being relatively successful. I'd obtained funding, I'd published, I'd been promoted to the, the system from um, assistant to associate professor at McMaster. Um, so I, you know, I'd been, I'd met those metrics and, and fulfilled them. Um, but there were challenges, I think, at the, both the, the local, you know, the institutional level and the national level, uh, especially the extraordinarily highly competitive funding environment that exists in Canada and, and potentially uh, in other places as well, I think, at the moment. And, and it was clear to me that they weren't likely to resolve soon. And so you were trapped in a cycle of seeking funding. And one of the things that I'd done as well, I think, to try and I'd followed the funding and I diversified uh, and moved myself into to areas which didn't necessarily come easily to me. You know, I, I'd worked it. I'd done some work in uh, cancer, published in breast cancer. Um, and then um, I was working also now in, in, in te- at that point in, in intestinal stem cells. And so I'd moved around to try and uh, to, to capture funding and to, uh, they were all areas that I was genuinely interested in and enjoyed working in, but it was becoming very difficult if you, when you spread yourself with the volume of literature that's published now to actually keep up. And, and I think I thought to myself, you know, I, I've done this, I've enjoyed it. Um, it's maybe good time to get out on a high note. And so I was very fortunate to make a connection with a policy expert uh, and friend who had transitioned out of science in their earlier in their career and and, and started a, a career in policy. And, and we had some very useful conversations that let me know that, you know, that there's more to the life than science. And because when you're in an academic position, and that's, I think this goes as well when you're a trainee, you get blinkered. You, you, it's very difficult to understand that there's a large world out there of, of, of other great things happening that you can quite easily contribute to. You know, you have a skill, a number of skill sets which are germane to that. If, if you've made it as a PI and you've been able to write grants, then you can do scientific writing. You can, you know, you can communicate. You can, you can critically evaluate things. You can do all sorts of things that are those skills are in are are in demand in other occupations. And I think there was a big psychological mountain to climb. And that's why it probably took me a couple of years to make and finally commit to the move. Um, it, it, because you you wrap your identity up with what you are as, a, as an investigator. You know, I'm a professor, I'm a scientist, I'm a bench scientist, I do this, and that's who I am. And so making that change um, was, that was probably one of the more fundamental and difficult parts of it. But once you reach that point and you're able to make that change and you, uh, then it became relatively straightforward. And there's still things that I miss from transitioning out of science. I, I, I really miss working with the trainees. The trainees were always fun to work with, you know, the, 
engagement, the invigorating opinions, the fresh perspectives. Those were, you know, daily doses of wonderful sort of experiences that I really enjoyed. And so I, I miss that. I, I miss some of the creativity that comes from the designing of projects and experiments. But there's different outlets for, for that, and especially my new role. And so, you know, it, I think I just, it's a slow building process and then you just have to rip off the the, the Band-Aid and, and just do it. And, and that's what I did in the end. But what do you think was, the, in a way, the trigger? Because sometimes there could be, you know, a life event where people realize, I mean, for example, with COVID, you know, I was listening to the radio a few days ago. People were saying that, you know, lots of people are deciding to retire early because mm -hmm. they feel, you know, it's like life is too short. I mean, in the case of decided, okay, I'm going to wrap up my my career as a research group leader. I mean, that's a massive transition because this position, you know, for those who are doing PhDs and postdocs, they are, you know, the, the, the golden nugget that they want to get and saying, actually, I've done that. I've had lots of achievements and I want to move on to something else for other people. The perception that other people have of letting go of that, people may think, oh, are you crazy? You know, why are you leaving this job for something else? So what was it that was the, the trigger or the or in a way the pull towards something better, different, more joyous? I don't know, or the push towards okay, I don't want to feel this way anymore, or I don't want to have to deal with this. Was it a pull? Was it a push? Was there a trigger? I think there were many different things that made me feel like this. I, I, and I think one of them was, um, it is difficult being a PR. You have to put in long hours continuously. You know, I, ha I have younger children and you'd be working weekends, you'd be working week evenings. And, you know, and, and you do that for a long time and, and you realize that there's, there's time that you're missing that you won't get back. And so... You know, I, I'm not saying that, you know, the, the role that I have now, you don't have to work hard, but uh, you, you certainly you have a more defined um, structure in terms of working. And, and I don't have to work weekends every weekend or like that. So uh, that that I think gives me the opportunity to spend time with my family, which I think I, I value greatly. And uh, and, and I think you also it was very stressful being an investigator, as I mentioned, you know, the funding components, the publishing, the, the, the pressures in general that you get through that role, because being an investigator is really like being an entrepreneur. You have lots of different hats. You're managing the budgets. You know, you have to have financial uh, um, inclination there as well. You're managing HR issues. You're managing um, you know, health and safety. You're managing SOP writing for the lab. You're, You're managing the writing of and devising of projects, applications for uh, you know funding, writing publications. You're you're communicating with peers. There's so many different skill sets that you need to be uh, an investigator, and they consume a lot of time. and 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 I think I'd done them, and I think I was just ready to to say, well, there's something else to do here, you know. And and I think. Also, it came with the opportunity to work at a, an organization. So the, the role came up at, at Stem Cell Network. They advertised for this role. And I saw the, the advert for this in early, I think early 2018, and um, thought to myself, well, I, I'm, this is what I'm going to go for and, and do it. And 
and you know the history with the network i'd always really been a, a believer in this this organization and so this role came up and it seemed like a perfect fit so it's very fortunate enough to be able to to interview uh, with it and uh, for that job and then get the position and uh, you know and it was it was a bit of a whirlwind uh, at the time uh, the, the organization was renewing its mandate and funding through the federal government and so there was a little bit of unpredictability when i joined you know it, would we get more funding would we continue on in the end we did and and that was that was great because i'd committed to do that I, I would also say that the university uh mcmaster university was was gracious enough to give me an opportunity a leave of absence that would allow me to go and work at the stem cell network and then return if things didn't work out so, that was, so you know that was it was a very big thing you know that's, that's massive because it's really giving you a security blanket to say yeah, okay, am i missing you know, that too much or hmm. yeah I, i would say though i was on soft money contracts at mcmaster university so i still had to renew you know and go through that process um so it wasn't that i had a guaranteed tenured position at mcmaster but um that really did give um you know a soft landing uh, if things were to go wrong or an escape clause and that was really really helpful and I'm, I'm uh, I am grateful to the university for providing that that opportunity no that's really great to have so how did it feel in term of the this um, transition to a new professional identity going from being a research group leader to being a manager you know of a program on a, on a network Even though it's a, you know a research network, it's still a new professional identity. Yeah. I think, as I said, as I mentioned, you are really wrapped up. Um, your job becomes your identity, and you know, being a professor, um, it's a really it's a it is a privilege to be in that role. And you talk to people about it, um, you know, when they ask what you do, and you and you 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 can say it with pride. It is something that you know and. A research administrator doesn't sound quite as exciting, but it actually turns out to be quite exciting and and quite interesting because the role gives you um, it gives at least the role that I have gives me the opportunity to have a really different view from the view that I had as a, an investigator. I'm on the other side of the fence. I'm funding scientists. I get to see the network as a whole. I get to see the research priorities. I understand far better the Uh, the priorities that are competing on either side, you know, what the scientists believe to be important versus what the funders and the federal government, for instance, believes to be important. Those are not necessarily overlapping and uh, similar all the time. So, you know, I think that has been really great. It's allowed me to interact with scientists in a different way and to propel and, and accelerate, uh, I, I hope, and, and give scientists a voice In, in the process, at the back end of the process where decisions are being made. And, and I've tried very hard to make sure that that, that is um, something I've done. One of the things that um, that's really critical in, in our career is, you know, um, the help that we get from mentors and, uh, you know, the opportunities that, that we're given. I mean, you you mentioned that during your, your postdoc, you know, you, you had really brilliant mentors, but... Now that you are, you know, that you have moved into a professional role, often the, the career path as, you know, uh, as, as a research trained profi uh, professional is also very uncertain because, you know, the, the 
this role, there is not necessarily an exact path of what's next for you. So how do you actually see your professional development now in terms of navigating that next stage in your in your career? You know, do you have specific mentors? Because again, it's kind of a new area to explore. Yeah, I, I think um, I think when I first started in the role, it was it was. Um, there was a lot of it, concepts were alien, you know, how, how things were done and viewed from the, the, the administrative sort of perspective and, and how, how science is done by the funding agencies, et cetera. Um, I've been very fortunate to have, to work with a great team at the Stem Cell Network. Um, uh, we have a really strong group of people there from Kate Murray, who is the, the executive director, and, uh, and also Michael Rudnick, who's the scientific director, who is a fantastic um, you know, contributor to the to the organization as well. Um, and I think they have been able to uh, you know, provide really good um, insight and guidance uh, about the processes and how you know and the thinking that goes on. You know, I think I've learned to understand better how the strategic thoughts, are, you know, the strategic planning processes occur and, and, and what the priorities are and, and to consider better, you know, the impacts that this have, uh, that the decisions that are made have for the research communities, you know, the longer term impacts. And so that, that's been a, a really great, um, you know, experience working with them and actually understanding that. I've been also fortunate to forge interactions with a number of people at different organizations across Canada now and and those relationships um you know the interactions always reveal new ways of thinking new ways of doing things and if you're listening to people and and you know really hearing what they're saying and 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 trying to understand why they're coming from then I think that makes it a lot easier you know this role is a lot about people and um and understanding you know the processes and, and communicating. And, and I think that's been a really strong part of the development process for me is, is trying to, to master that as much as possible. And, and, you know, I think curiosity there helps, you know, as I said before, curiosity is a important thing. So I'm curious, I'm interested about people, why they make the decisions they make and why they say the things they say. And, and, and that can be a, a useful sort of motivator there. What is the impact that you want to make on research culture in your current role? Because obviously it's not just national, it's an international network, but you are able to influence through some of the programs that you're developing culture, you know, in the research environment, even though you are not an institution to yourself. You're right that the stem cell network has its own sort of strategic plan and it's, and, and I contribute to that. Um, uh, I, you know, from my perspective, I really would like to be able to, as I say, ensure that the the, the voice of scientists is heard within, you know, the process and, and figures into that thinking so that decisions aren't made that um, could, you know, be, be problematic. And, and we, we're very careful and consider and we consult with the community broadly as well and make sure that the, the decisions that we make gel with the needs of the community, because it is about, it's about uh, making sure that that science is done well and, and also the community is brought along with this and, and because the community is the most important asset, I think, in a network. And, and I think that's been really a, a major sort of aspiration of mine is to assist the community in some way and, and use this role to guide, help guide. And that's been, I think, particularly 
um, I've been able to make particular contributions within the training components. So I, I in my role as uh, as um, program director for research and partnerships, I also do the training elements as well. So I develop uh, workshops, training workshops that are offered across Canada to the trainees who are in different, uh, who are working in regenerative medicine in Canada. And that's been, you know, an opportunity to help um, trainees go th- and experience the similar sort of support that I had when I was in the in the network. And, and that was formative and, and really helpful. And so, and that, that um, aspect has been really rewarding. I'm fortunate enough be, be a, we have a great community of investigators who also participate in, in the development of those training courses. And so we're able to do things uh, as a collective to, to serve the needs of the group. And, 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 and again, that's rewarding and, and, and being very uh, an important part of this for me as well. So um, we, we're going to finish off our discussion because I've taken a lot of your time. So what what would be the advice that you could give yourself, your young self, you know, if you were going to do it all over again, you know, what would you tell yourself to have an easier ride on this career journey? I don't know if I would do it all again, because I I, I kind of, you know, I've enjoyed the, you know, it's been difficult, but it, you know, it's been rewarding. Uh, mo- most of my career has been, uh, has been rewarding. So um, I, I don't know if I'd change too much. Um as I said, I'm a believer in trying to make the best of the position that you're in. And uh, I'm fortunate. I'm very fortunate for where I am right now. But I think I think self-confidence is a really important part of the process. And, and at, at different points, that can waver during the process. I think just being kinder to yourself during the process, you know, when you do fail, it, the, the failures you know, I think you've got to rebrand them within your own head as, as just stepping stones to success. And so I think being kind to yourself is, is something that you should be doing during the process because you will end up somewhere, everybody does. And, and as long as you've enjoyed the journey and made the most of the opportunities around you, which is really what I did, you know, throughout my career, you know, there was no one single plan. I, I capitalized upon the opportunities I saw. I, I attempted to, to, to make opportunities by networking, by connecting, by working um, hard at, at, at processes and, and, and being a good colleague as often as I could. And, and that's been really rewarding. So I think, I think maybe just being kinder to myself through the process because it was, it was at times difficult. I, I think overall, though, you know, it was good. That's, that's really good to hear. So my, one of my final questions is, you know, what, what, uh, what gives you joy the mo- or the most joy in, um, you know, in working either, you know, as when you were, a, you know, research group leader or through the, the work that you are doing now? You know, joy, it's, it's a word that we don't use often in the, yeah. in, you know, in the research environment. And uh, what, what is joy for you? I think I think joy is other people's success. I think if you can have a hand in elevating and um, other people, that that you know, I, I think really feels good. Making seeing someone else happy because they succeeded and done something that was was difficult to do. And so, as I mentioned before, you know, I always enjoyed the the opportunity to work with trainees and help them develop, for instance, projects in the lab. Or more lately, as I mentioned, um, the training workshops that we run and and the other the other services that we offer to trainees, those are always those always are you know uh, enjoyable. Um, 
so I think that's probably where I've gained a lot of pleasure from just making making other people uh, you know succeed and or having a hand at least in, in their success and, and and elevating people that's been a really rewarding process well that's a really nice um, comment to to end on I'm really glad that you accepted to uh, to take part in this uh, interview Jonathan thank you very much thank you Sandrine it was absolutely a pleasure to talk to you and I look forward to speaking to you again at some point <laughs>